Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. We're back with the Bill Press Pod and this week's Reporters Roundtable. For the second week in a row, the January 6th Select Committee has sucked up all the oxygen in the room with its hearings on the insurrection of January 6, 2021. Hearing number three, which just concluded a little over an hour ago, focused on the intense pressure that Donald Trump put on Mike Pence to overturn the election and the danger that Pence faced at the Capitol when he refused to do so. So what impact are these hearings having, and could they eventually lead to criminal charges filed against Donald Trump and maybe John Eastman? Meanwhile, the Senate is still trying to reach agreement on a compromise plan on gun safety legislation. We look at both issues today with our panel. Eliza Collins, congressional correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Amanda Becker, national political reporter for 19th News. And David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining us. We just finished uh, hearing number three. Uh, Well, a lot of news made. uh, Hearing that was mostly focused on Mike Pence. Um, Eliza, what did we learn? Well, I think we knew that uh, former President Trump put a lot of pressure on Mike Pence to not follow his constitutional duty and basically reject the election results. But there were just so many more details about what that looked like, about you know Pence's decision to um, go forward with what he was supposed to do. There was also new details about how close he came when the rioters were there. I think at one point, basically 40 feet away from him. Um, So there was just a lot more information about what that day and the days leading up to it actually entailed. Yeah. David, what was your main takeaway from, uh, from, I mean, this was uh, over two hours focused, right? More focused than any other hearing just on pressure on Mike Pence before and on that day. What was your takeaway? Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a contrarian because I, I have heard almost all of the deep, all of the, all of the things that happened. I have heard over the past year and a half. I think what the committee has done is put them in a, in a coherent logical order and explaining how Trump and his allies basically organized this, what amounts to a conspiracy to steal the election. Uh, I guess the one thing that struck me today was the fact that I, we saw John Eastman on video taking the fifth more than a hundred <laughs> right. times, and actually uh, on putting on paper his desire for a presidential pardon. So that tells me we may have a little consciousness of guilt on Mr. Eastman's part for pushing this absurd theory that the vice president somehow has the authority to overturn a presidential election. So I guess that's the, that's the most important thing in terms of future criminal prosecutions. I do think uh, Mr. Eastman has something mm-hmm. to worry about. Uh, and Amanda, did you learn anything new or uh, otherwise, what do you think the main purpose of putting so much attention on Mike Pence today? What was the committee trying to achieve? 
Yeah, so in Thursday's hearing, it was, I think there were fewer bombshells, actually, than in the first two hearings, especially because they teased the bombshells from Thursday's session um, ahead of time. And it was the video yeah. of Eric Hirschman um, talking about how, you know, he, he had some strong <laughs> words for some of President Trump's attorneys. Um to me, to Thursday's hearing was really kind of like a, bat, a battle between the lawyers. And it really showed you a little bit more fully behind the scenes how Trump's lawyers were saying one thing and then Pence's lawyers were saying another. Um, and it was pretty clear that a lot of those um, attorneys felt that had they advised Pence to do anything else, it would have been professional right. malpractice. Uh, and speaking of um, their lawyers, Greg Jacob, who was, I think, the principal witness today, at least... <laughs> Most of the questions were directed uh, at him, uh, maybe because he did not take as long to answer as Judge Lutick did. Um, but uh, Jacob testified uh, that the very first time that this, what might happen on January 6th, was discussed with Mike Pence, the very first time the possibility that he might do what Donald Trump was suggesting, here is Greg Jacob with uh, Mike Pence's reaction. The vice president's first instinct here is so decisive on this question. There's just no way that the framers of the Constitution who divided power and authority, who separated it out, who um, had broken away from George III uh, and declared him to be a tyrant, there was no way that they would have put in the hands of one person the authority to determine who was going to be president of the United States. Eliza, I thought that was a pretty compelling summation of what it was all about. Absolutely. And I think that's really interesting because that obviously is contrary to what we heard Trump saying at that time. I think the day before January 6th, he sent out saying he and Pence were in total agreement. And you know, then he continued to say if Pence makes this decision. But it really sounds like Pence made the decision the first time it mm -hmm. came up. And so, and to Amanda's point, it really was sort of, you felt two teams there. Pence's lawyers talking about their conversations and how he was always planning to do the right thing. But, um, you know, it's clear that Pence never wavered on what he should do on right. the 6th. So, David, uh, uh, Pence's attorneys are all telling him, uh, no, this is crazy, right? You don't have this authority. We've researched it. We've written a memo. Uh, and Trump can't find anybody else in the White House to kind of carry water for him. So he goes to this guy, John Eastman. Who is he? Where did he come from? How did he get this role of being the number chief presidential advisor? Well, he's, uh, he's a longtime lawyer. He's very conservative, obviously. And he's been well-known in conservative circles for several decades I believe he taught at uh, maybe Redlands. He taught at a small school in California, and he's been Chapman. there for a while. Chapman, they I dismissed believe. him. He, yeah. Chap, excuse me, you're right. I'm sorry, Chapman. Yeah, you know, he taught there for years. They dismissed him after <laughs> all this came out. But I think he was brought to the president's attention by Sidney mm. Powell, and he, for whatever reason, he decided to jump on the bandwagon with this theory that the 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 January sixth congressional that the the, the Biden's victory could somehow be stopped with the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th. And he seems to develop this theory out of whole cloth, but it was something that Trump wanted to hear. And for whatever reason, Trump decided to go forward with it. Uh, but he's very much in the minority with that. But uh, he's, 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 uh, he's been considered a kind of a fringe lawyer, even by fellow conservatives. But here he was right in the middle of this uh, 
potential constitutional yeah, crisis. I, I, I was amazed by the, uh, you know, the, the power that he got inside the White House that he had principally because Donald Trump was giving him that power, right? He was saying what Donald Trump wanted. Um, uh, so Amanda, it was referenced a little bit earlier, Eric Hirschman, who was White House counsel at one time, uh, he got sick and tired of hearing this nonsense from uh, John Eastman. And Eric Hirschman described for the committee a call that he got from Eastman the day after January 6th, after Mike Pence had not done what Trump uh, asked him to do, and in fact had fled for his life, the day after John Eastman calls him and still wants Eric Hirschman to be part of a conspiracy to um, challenge the vote in Georgia. Here is Mr. Hirschman talking about what he had to say to John Eastman. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right. I said, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. <laughs> well, Amanda. <laughs> I mean, to the extent there's been a star of these hearings so far, when it comes to the witnesses, it's definitely Eric Hirschman. I mean, that's who they teased yeah. ahead of this yeah. hearing. That They teased that little bit. Um, he does not mince words, and he clearly just... He just kind of seems uh, over it, like he he's not he wasn't having any of this then, and he's not going to entertain any of this now. And yeah, I mean, his words were, you know, yeah. <laughs> you just heard him, and it was essentially you better lawyer up, <laughs> right? Uh, but we learned, uh, Eliza, that uh, maybe the message got through a little bit to John Eastman because. Then he calls Rudy Giuliani and says, can I get a presidential pardon? Well, he emailed right, Rudy that's... Giuliani. So then, of course, that's now it's now evidence. Right. And so I think, you know, David made this point earlier. This was probably the most explosive part of the hearing and does not bode well um, for Eastman. You know, if there are sort of criminal prosecutions that come out of this, asking for a pardon is is not a great look. Um <laughs> And so he heard something, but he didn't necessarily do exactly what he was told no. to do. In an email. He asked yes. for it in an email. <laughs> right. right. So as Eliza said, that's now, that's now part uh, of the evidence indeed. So where does this go now? Um, does it go to what, what I thought was, and, and again, this was leaked before, but seeing the comments of Judge David Carter, the federal judge in California, who said that Trump and Eastman, uh, there's little doubt that they broke the law. David, where does this go? Well, at the start of the hearings, the big question was, would the committee make a criminal referral to the Justice Department? In more recent days, you've heard some committee members, particularly Jamie Raskin, saying, well, when when terms of referral, that's really refers to uh, perjury cases or contempt of Congress. uh, cases that are things that are done to them and Congress makes the complaint. He was suggesting, he was suggesting that the, so that he was suggesting there might not be, there's no need for any kind of criminal referral on something like this. And my understanding is that there's a big fight among the committee members over how they should handle this, but it seems palpably obvious to me that, that the very least some committee members will formally in some form formally ask attorney general Merrick Garland to investigate this. 
and presumably at that point Garland and the DOJ will have to have to say or will need to say one way or another whether they are in fact investigating the former president over this. We know that they're investigating the uh, insurrection overall. We don't know to the extent to which they're looking into Trump's activities. But that may be a question that, that gets answered because of this committee's uh, work. Well, uh, uh, Amanda, I know there is that big, as David indicated, there's this debate inside the committee, and I've heard it among Democrats in Washington, whether or not the committee should make a formal referral for criminal charges to the Department of Justice. My question, Amanda, to you and others is, do they really have, do they have to make a referral? I mean, the evidence is out there for the Department of Justice to seize and act on, correct? Even without a referral. Yes. I, you know, the Department of Justice is going to do what they're going to do, I think, whether they make a criminal referral yeah. or not. I mean, they can watch these hearings like everyone else. They have access to all of the materials that they've gotten. They have access to things that the public doesn't have access to should should they want it. So, you know, I don't see how whether the committee makes a criminal referral or not should really impact at all whether the Justice Department moves mm-hmm. forward or not. Uh, so we're about halfway through the hearings. I don't know if if any of you know exactly how many more hearings are still to come. Uh, Eliza, is there any way to know what kind of an impact these hearings are having? We know 20 million people watched the first night on primetime television. Um, but are they, uh, to use the overused phrase? Oh, I've been asking sources in both parties, and they say not much, at least on the elections. I mean, 20 million is a giant number of people, but. I imagine a lot of those people were the type of people that already cared, already thought what happened on January 6th was wrong. I mean, I just got back from South Carolina last week where I was writing about Tom Rice, who was one of the 10 Republicans Mm -hmm. who voted to impeach Trump in a conservative district. He lost his primary on Tuesday. And almost every person I talked to there believes the election was stolen. So I think our country is still just as divided and the truth is going into the election, the economy is what people are voting on. When I talk to those swing voters, that's what they're voting on. They might think what happened on January 6th was a problem. They might, you know, if they're seeing these clips or watching the hearings, there might be more that concerns them. But I have not met any real political strategists who say, yeah, that's our key to winning in November. Uh, David, where does Mike where does this go for Mike Pence, right? I mean, does this, clearly he's got his eyes on 2024. Does what we heard today help him or hurt him in the Republican Party? Um, I just think he's in a world of hurt in terms of the Republican Party, at least in terms of Republican primaries, because that's where your hardcore tends to vote. Because you've got some Republicans who still really don't trust Mike Pence because they feel like he abetted Trump during the first four years of his presidency. And then, of course, you've got Trump supporters who feel like he betrayed them. So uh, I, I think he's betwixt and between with terms of the Republicans. But I should add, he doesn't feel that way. It's obviously he is running for president. And I was talking to some of his people today who said that he wasn't going to he wasn't going to talk about the committee today. He made a visit to Cincinnati and hung out with Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio. But they did tease me the fact that he's planning to speak in Chicago on Monday and that I should listen uh-huh. in. So we may well hear from the vice president uh, next week on what he thinks about all this. But to answer your question, I I don't see where it helps him with, among Republican primary voters, quite frankly. But it does set up a fascinating potential primary in 2024 between a former president and a former uh, vice you know, president. Uh, I hear that. But, Amanda, some of the language today, people speaking about Mike Temps, Pence, this even – 
Chairman Benny Thompson toward the end, but uh, but some of the tr- former Pence aides also were speaking of him. And, you know, this is a man who put duty to the country, you know, above his political party. This is a man who had the courage to stand up and say no to the president. I mean, you could almost make your TV spot right out of those comments. You could. I mean, you know, you have him starting out the day by by reading right. a prayer and yeah. staffers in the day by circulating other prayer, yeah. prayers. They're talking about how he's in this secure location, praying, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but as we've seen, I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump supporters are, are will do what Donald Trump wants them to do to a certain extent. And I mean, you even had Judge Ludwig, and I might be emphasizing his name a little bit wrong, um, say that Donald Trump and his supporters were, quote, still a clear and present danger to the American democracy. And he said that was be- not because of actually January 6th, but because of the danger they still uh, could potentially have in 2024, not even the midterm election. So, you know, that is really, I think, a statement that shows that um, Trumpism is definitely not dead in this party, the Republican Party. And, you know, it's just uh, we are just going to have to wait and see kind of what impact this has. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, Eliza, let's listen to that clip of Mike. Uh, Doc. By the way, I thought it was Ludwig too, but they were all pronouncing it Ludwig. So that's, I guess, what it is. But um, his very last statement to the committee was really very, very chilling when he said, Basically, the threat uh, has not disappeared. It's still there, maybe more than ever. Uh, Here's uh, Judge Lutick. Today, almost two years after that fateful day in January 2021, that still Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Uh, Eliza, clear and present danger. Pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're seeing it over the past several weeks, tons of Republican election deniers, people who said that what happened in 2020 is not legitimate, are becoming every week there's a primary, they're becoming the Republican nominees for positions that would run elections. And so, I mean, we just saw in Nevada on Tuesday, several election deniers, including the, you know, candidate for Senate um, and I think Secretary of State. There's all sorts of people aligned with sort of Trump's view that when Democrats win or when Republicans win that are not Trumpy, um, it's illegitimate. And we're seeing, you know, in Arizona, that's in August, but Trump has endorsed several candidates on the basis of them denying the 2020 election. You know, there is a real chance the governor, the secretary of state, the senator um, in these competitive states are election deniers. Mm -hmm. We saw this week in New Mexico, a Republican commission refusing to certify election results. So I think there's a very real chance we start to see more and more of that. Good. Well, there was one other issue that was uh, occupying the attention of Congress this week, and that is the issue of gun safety, gun control, particularly after the most recent shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Uvalde, Texas. And it looks like there may be the beginnings, the makings of a deal. Uh, Let's talk about that with our panelists when we come back and are joined again by David Jackson, Eliza Collins, and Amanda Becker here on uh, today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. 
And today's roundtable is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the great men and women of the Teamsters Union, over one and a half million strong. They are America's largest and most diverse labor union, uh, representing every aspect of the American workforce, everybody, as they say, from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters Union, thank them for their good work, Building America, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's roundtable. Eliza Collins joining us from the Wall Street Journal, David Jackson from USA Today, uh, and Amanda Becker, 19th News. Eliza, I know you've been following this. There were the beginnings, at least, of a bipartisan deal announced. What's in it? What's not? And where is it? Well, I'm actually in the Capitol right now because we've been trying to figure out exactly <laughs> where it is all day. Um, so this, if this moves, it would be a very big deal. It would be the most significant piece of gun control legislation since the 90s when there was the assault weapons ban. But there's a bipartisan agreement to a framework, which is the key mm-hmm. word here, for um, funding for mental health, funding for school safety, um, rate basically taking it so that if you are committed, um, if records for juveniles would be looked at um, if they're trying to buy a gun between 18 and 21, which they currently are not looked at, closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which would mean that if you were convicted of a crime and your girlfriend um, basically said, I don't want them to have a gun, they would not they would be banned from purchasing a gun currently. That's the case for spouses and for people mm-hmm. living together, but not for just people dating. Um, and then incentives to help states enact red flag laws, basically, where law enforcement can take guns from people who are deemed a danger to themselves or others. So this would be a significant deal. Um, it's had the blessing of 10 Republicans 
and Mitch McConnell as basically the 11th. So if they're able to figure out legislative text, it would be very significant. The problem is they're disagreeing on the legislative text right now um, on the red flag laws and the boyfriend loophole, which would be some of the more significant pieces of gun control and actually what Democrats want. So they left for the day. Um, They're going to continue negotiating, but they still say they're aiming to have a vote by next week. Uh, So it's not a sure thing for sure, right? It's not a sure thing. The legislative text was a big deal. The McConnell endorsement was a big deal because things really don't move without McConnell's endorsement on the GOP side. Um, But, you know, the devil's in the details and it's easy to agree on a framework and We've seen deals fall apart before, but they're still cautiously optimistic, I would say. So, David, the one thing that, as Eliza pointed out, that is not in there is raising the limit, raising the age limit for buying an AR-15 from 18 to 21. Uh, Did Democrats give up too much? Did Democrats cave just in the interest of getting any bill at all? Well, of course, it depends on how you define caved. I mean, I think think they desperately wanted something, and that just was a non-starter for too many Republicans and, and gun groups. So I, I guess they felt like if you think about it, it's a state issue anyway, in many regards. So I think some of the Democrats just felt like we really don't, you know, we, we can live without that at the federal level if we get some of this other stuff. So, you know, it's legislation is the art of the compromise. I mean, my question, though, is whether this is actually going to come to fruition. I know that 10 Republicans agreed to right. the framework. We haven't seen 10 Republicans agree to the actual language, and I'm still skeptical. Uh, In your soundings, David, is this a, um, as Joe Biden would like it to be, um, an issue that, you know, will get Democrats out to vote in 2024, 2022? That's what they're hoping, but I think the question more is, is is it something the Republicans will sign off on in the belief that it won't hurt them? (laughs) So. right. Um, I think that's that's the more important that's the uh, the bigger question right now. But yeah, obviously the Democrats feel like uh, guns are a, are a big issue for them, and they could probably they could probably get some mileage out of some kind of legislation. I think that's true. Yeah, on that point, Amanda, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I saw a Politico poll. I think it was this morning's uh, Politico showing overwhelming overwhelming public support, like up in the seventy nine eighty percent area for. Uh, all the things that the Democrats wanted in this bill, basically, e- even like 60 percent for a total ban on assault weapons. But, you know, uh, upper 80s when it came to background checks and raising the late a- age from 18 to 21, um, it, you know, so are Republicans out of step by just not doing something pr- stronger here? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that specific polling, but I've seen a lot of uh, polling related to gun control measures. They are wildly popular. Um, especially some of the more incremental steps that could be taken. Now, uh, of course, gun polling, even more so than other forms of polling, depend- it really depends on how you at- phrase the questions mm-hmm. in terms of what people uh, say they will support. And of course, the more it sounds like a really common sense, easy, no-brainer step, the more people are going to say they're for it. But yeah, I mean, what they're considering in this in this package right now, in this framework, is not controversial when it comes to the uh, American people and voters. It's only controversial in Congress. Right. Um, so, uh, Eliza, if you had to, you've been following this so closely. Uh, what What is your take? Is there going to be a deal? And will, to David's skepticism, will it actually get past the Senate? You know, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I've seen too many deals fall apart over here. I think 
early on, the framework, the McConnell blessing, those are actually very significant. And I think, you know, just what we're talking about, these measures are fairly common sense, popular measures. We've seen some of these enacted in Republican-led states. And talking to Republicans here, there really is a sense with the frequency and just how brutal and gruesome these shootings are, especially school shootings. There's, you know, concern from Republicans about their kids. So I think all of that means they're at the table. I also think it's going to be a really good year electorally for Republicans regardless. Um, That's an argument Chris Murphy is making is basically if they move on something small and they see they're reelected in November, maybe they'll be willing to go further in the future. I'm not sure that Republicans feel that way, but I think they're feeling like they probably won't get hit as badly this year. But again, it's all about the details and there's lots of interest groups on both sides lobbying for less and lobbying for more on this. So I'm not I'm not going to guess. <laughs> OK, we'll let, you off. we'll let you off the hook there then uh, on that point. So it's been a week again dominated by the January 6th hearings. There'll be more hearings next week and there'll be more negotiations on this gun control measure uh, and maybe even leading, as Eliza said, to a vote uh, next week. We'll leave it at that for the uh, news of the week. Thank you to our panelists, Amanda Becker, David uh, Jackson, and Eliza Collins. But before you go, as busy as you were with January 6th, as busy as you were with the gun safety measures, uh, anything else, particular story, catch your attention this week? We always call it our favorite story of the week. What about you, Amanda? It is a story that was in the Baltimore Banner, which is a new nonprofit news outlet based out of uh, Baltimore, as you might guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everyone should check out the work that they're starting to do. It's a story on the oldest living Jane Doe. And I just found this story to be fascinating. It was a woman who uh, grew up kind of in between the Bronx and Baltimore. And she always kind of sensed that something wasn't quite right in her family and she went to go get a birth certificate so she could join the military. Um, turns out she didn't have one. So it kind of, it, it turns out she suspected that she was not her mother's child. Um, and I won't tell you all the details of how it ends, um, but it, it follows her on her journey to find out who um, she actually is. Uh, she was well, well, well into adulthood and had four children of her own before she actually found out who she was or what her name was. Wow. An amazing story. In the Baltimore Banner, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. David Jackson, how about you? What caught your attention? Um, a series of stories, really. And it's the Mike Ludig story because it reminded me of, it's, to me, it's a, a great what if of American history. You know, you remember Ken Starr, the Whitewater prosecutor? Yep. You know, he came oh. very, very close to being named on the Supreme Court by President George H.W. Bush. Yeah. And I've often wondered, just think how different history would have been if Starr had, in fact, if, if Bush had, in fact, picked Starr rather than David Souter. Well, Mike Ludig came very close to being on the Supreme Court as well. He was very high on the list of George W. Bush when he looked at his Supreme Court. Hmm. In the end, Bush decided to go with John Roberts and then Samuel Alito. But uh, you you just can't help but but think how differently things would have turned out if, in fact, Ludig had, had in fact, gone on the court. I also noted in these stories that Ludig was a very famous federal judge back in his day, and he he launched the careers of, of many famous lawyers whom he hired as clerks, and one of them was none other than John Eastman. 
Oh, yeah, right. So it's the, the tricks of history and the interconnections have always interested me, and that's the, this is the latest example. Uh, and one other clerk was the one who was questioning him today, right? A former right. Republican U.S. attorney. And, well, Ted Cruz, I think, was one of his clerks, too. So he, he, has, he has a distinguished pedigree. Very, very much so. Uh, Eliza Collins, your favorite story of the week. Yeah, so mine's a little bit dark, but uh, um, this week the Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner spoke to the Senate and basically said that the Colorado River's reservoirs oh. are, have just gotten to extremely low levels and the only way to continue basically supplying people water long-term will require significant cutbacks. And this is something, um, you know, all news outlets really have been following, but it's just, I'm from Arizona, just how much of a crisis water is in the West and really how rapidly it's coming, I think is something that everybody should be paying attention to. Absolutely. And as a Californian, right? California and, yeah. California and Arizona have been fighting over the Colorado River water for a long, long time. And um, I saw those reports pretty soon. There won't be any more water to fight over, which uh, is not good for anybody. Uh, good. Right. And yeah. I think it's just coming faster than people expected and planned for. So uh, for my favorite story, I have to say, I know we come back, it gets us back to January 6th, but for me, the highlight of the three hearings so far is the testimony under oath, I might add, from Jason Miller and Bill Stepien that Rudy Giuliani was drunk the night of November 3rd when he went to White House and convinced Donald Trump to go out and say, we won this election. I don't care what the voters say, but... Uh, I, I, Rudy, of course, immediately put out a text denying that he was drunk, which he took down later. I don't know why he took it down. I think maybe because he figured it would just be too hard to prove that he wasn't. But when when they said again under the oath, under the risk of perjury, that Rudy Giuliani was totally intoxicated that night, uh, I think we can believe it. And what a sad commentary that he was the only guy that night that Donald Trump was listening to. So how Rudy Giuliani has fallen from being America's mayor uh, back in 2001. And that's it for today's roundtable. Thanks so much to our panelists, David Jackson from USA Today, Amanda Becker, 19th News, Eliza Collins, the Wall Street Journal. And thanks to all of you for listening. Now go out and have a great, great weekend and then come back and see us next Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then.